Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and the entire city of Jerusalem is buzzing with commotion. See, for just eight days every year, all the people of Israel would pack like sardines into Jerusalem to remind themselves of the promises of God of old, to remind themselves of the time when God brought the most powerful nation of Egypt down to its knees through ten plagues. The time when all the people of Israel, two million strong, were able to leave Egypt and to head toward the promised land. The time when Pharaoh had second thoughts after relieving his free labor force of two million people. And then he got his chariots and his horsemen and he began to go out after them. And he decided that he would slaughter them in the wilderness or bring them back as slaves, whatever the people of Israel decided. But in a miraculous fashion, God parts the Red Sea and all the people of Israel walk through on dry ground. And when Pharaoh sees this, he is indignant and they begin chasing after the people of Israel. And in the last moment, when the final Israelite family goes through the Red Sea and just as Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen are about to catch up, God slams shut the Red Sea. And now with the Red Sea behind them, and a desert wasteland in front of them, they realize, how are we going to survive? How are we going to have water to drink? And there the Lord brings them to a rock, and streams of water flow out of it, and they remind themselves of the promises of God. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, for the last eight days, two priests would get large basins of water, and they would pour it in the temple, for everyone to see, reminding themselves of the promises of God. But on this, the eighth and final day, Jesus says this. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And the entire crowd is amazed. Some people say Jesus is a prophet. Still others say he's the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one that we have been waiting for. But still others are indignant and they want to put him to death. Regardless of the response, the entire city is stirring. But the Feast of Tabernacles, it wasn't only a time to remember that, but to remember that in the wilderness, God brought down his glorious presence with the people of Israel. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud, and by night, in a pillar of fire. The pillar of cloud during the day would shield them from the scorching desert sun, and a pillar of fire by night would keep them warm and would guide them in the midst of a dark and dreary place. And once again, on the eighth and final day, in this culminating moment where you can see that all the people of Israel, they're gathering around in tents. You have to picture this in your mind. Every single day for the last eight days, priests would light up these candelabras. I have a picture here for you to look at. You can see four candelabras are lit. And if you could picture this in your mind, thousands upon thousands of people gathered all around and they can see the light illuminate the darkness. And they would begin chanting, And singing Psalm chapter 27, which says this, The Lord is my light and my rescue. 
Or Isaiah chapter 60, which says, Arise, shine, for your light arrives, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. And so here's Jesus on the eighth and final day, standing underneath one of these candelabras. And he says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the entire crowd is amazed. Gateway family, how are you doing? Uh, we miss you around here. We so wish for the time and the place in which we can all gather together again, but I hope that you are doing well. And for those of you who are guests, we are so grateful that you have joined together with us and you are worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we're grateful for your presence as well. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab that. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And while you're looking there, let me just show you where we're going. For the next seven weeks, we are going to be looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of John. And the reason why we're doing that is shortly after this pandemic started, we made a commitment as a church that we would recommit our life to Jesus. It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but it's a time for us to say, I'm going to recommit my life to follow Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's not a stagnant truth where we say, I believe Jesus is my Savior. But it's an active, moving truth that says, I will follow Jesus in obedience each and every day. And so we're leaning into this time, choosing to be disciples of Jesus. Choosing to take the time for us to grow in Christ. And one of the principles that we see in Scripture is one of the ways that we grow in Christ-likeness isn't just learning about what Jesus has done, but learning about who Jesus is in his essence. That's what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So here's the picture. As we behold the glory of God, we would be transformed into his likeness. As we behold Jesus' face and we see him for who he truly is, we can grow in Christ-likeness. And so that's why we're looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. The goal isn't that we would learn more about Jesus, but that we would see Jesus for who he truly is. And last week, we had the opportunity to start this series where Pastor Adam gave us an incredible message where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you haven't seen that, I encourage you to go back and watch that. And this week, we have the opportunity to read Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8, starting at verse 12, these words. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony isn't valid. And Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. What an awkward moment. 
So this is a a pretty bold statement of Jesus. Can we agree? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic or from a different religion. For someone to make such a radical statement, I think we can all agree that it's going to elicit a pretty radical response. And this, of course, I can't read this passage without thinking about uh, the author, C.S. Lewis, arguably one of the most influential Christian authors of all time, aside from authors of scripture. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity. But if you know his backstory, you know that he wrestled with this chapter, John chapter 8, most of all, before his conversion to Christianity, but also after See, even at an early age, at the age of 17, this is what C.S. Lewis said. He says, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity, it isn't even the best. So he says, I don't believe in God. But even if I did, I wouldn't follow Christianity. And one of the things that we know is that early in his childhood, he lost his mother in a tragic accident. And on the same day, he pretty much lost his father. His dad sent him and his younger brother off to a boarding school, and even when he did come and visit them, he was either emotionally absent or physically dangerous. And so C.S. Lewis, he says that during this time he didn't believe in God, and yet he retracts that statement later, and he says, it's not that I didn't believe in God, it's that I hated the God that I believed in. But later on in his life, in his early 30s, through God's miraculous intervention, God took hold of his life, and turned his life around. And what I find so interesting about the story of C.S. Lewis is how he interpreted this passage. See, one of the things that didn't change for him, even when he was an atheist to the time that he was a devout Christian, this passage grounded him. This passage of scripture was one that he returned to and he said, if Jesus is going to make this sort of radical statement, then there's only a couple of responses that we can have. Let me read this passage to you. This is what he says. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't have to accept his claim to be God. See, this is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, for example, that's what he's thinking about. To say the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. So you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And so the question for us today is how are we going to respond to the statements of Jesus? Is he who he says he is, our Lord and God? Is he the light of the world? Or is he a crazy person or something worse? Does he know what he's saying and he's simply lying? And that's the accusation that we find in our text this morning. Look again at John chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And what happens? Someone speaks up in the crowd and says, you're a liar. You can't validate your own claim. Who are you to say that you are the light of the world? So what's happening here? Jesus, he helps uh, 
give us a picture of what's happening here. So look again in your Bible at verse 15. Jesus says this, You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because, here's why, I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Circle, highlight, underline. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. So here's what we need to picture in our mind. We have a man who comes up to Jesus and he says, you can't testify on your, your own behalf. So what, what we have to have in our mind is a courtroom scene where you always have a plaintiff and a defendant. And one of the things that we know that is true in the first century context, but also today in the 21st century context, that a defendant cannot corroborate his own claim. If a defendant said something like, I didn't shoot the guy, I was there, I should know. Everyone's going to say, of course you're going to say that, but you need a witness to corroborate your claim. You can't testify on your own behalf. And that's exactly what's happening here. But what's so remarkable about this story is that Jesus says, you need a second witness? All right, I'll give you a second witness. And here's what he says. This is the zinger, verse 18. He says, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Boom, and once again, everyone's mouth falls to the floor. He says, you want a second witness? I'll give you my second witness. It's God the Father in heaven. (laughs) Amazing. So what I want for us to be doing for the remainder of our time this morning is to be able to witness Jesus for who he truly is. Not just to learn more about Jesus, but that we would catch a glimpse of who Jesus is in his essence. That's what I've been praying about for you ever since the start of this series, and I've been praying about that this week, is that we would be able to see Jesus for who he is, and in that way, we would grow in Christ-likeness, that we would take one step further in our devotion and our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus is making four remarkable claims when he says, I am the light of the world. Two about creation and two about salvation. So let's start with his creation claims. For Jesus to say, I am the light of the world, One of the things that he is saying, the first point in your note sheet is this, I am the creator of the universe. And everyone knows it. When Jesus says this, we know that he's bringing them all the way back to the first chapter of the first verse of the first book in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is how the story begins. The universe at this time is three things. It is formless, it is dark, and it is void. Scripture says this, the earth was formless, dark, and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the chaos, that's what you have to have in mind, the nothingness, and then he says what? Let there be light. And there was light. Structure replaces the formlessness. We have substance replacing the void, and we have light replacing and running out of town the darkness. In a single sentence, he says four words, let there be light, and all of these things begin to happen. And here's Jesus, and he's bringing this to mind, and everyone knows it. And just to make sure, this is what Jesus is saying, we see again in verse 18 what he says. Jesus says, I am the one who testifies for myself, and if you want a second witness, I'm going to give you a second witness. My other witness is God the Father. (laughs) 
To say, I am the light of the world, is to say, I am the creator of the universe. You know, there's a passage of scripture in Genesis 1 that for many, many years confused the people of Israel. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, which says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. What? Let us? I mean, who, who's God the creator talking to? Who's around him? I thought it's, I will make creation in my own image. I will make humankind in my own image. Who's the us? And it was confusing for so long until we read the first chapter of the first verse of the first book in the New Testament, John chapter 1 verse 1 in which we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. And what's the Word? John says the Word is Jesus. And so when we see Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, through 3, talking about the light being delivered, who is the active creator in the story? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is bringing to mind here. And so in our text, Jesus says, you don't know where I came from. In other words, he's saying, you're standing in front of the creator of the universe, buddy. Buddy's in the Greek, just so you know. He's saying, I'm the one who created the entire universe. But then he also says something else. He says, you don't know where I came from. But he also says, you don't know where I'm going. What does he mean by that? Let me share a couple passages of scripture that highlight this. The first is Isaiah 60, which as I've already said to you, this was a chapter that the people of Israel were singing together during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says this, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine upon you. Why? For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And then, The very last book of all scripture, Revelation chapter 20 and 21, says this, On that day, the city will not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. There will be no more light. They will not need the light of a lamp. They will not need the light of the sun. Why? For the Lord, God, will give them the light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. So there's a day that is coming in the new heavens and the new earth where the sun and the moon and the stars will be obsolete. Why? Because the illuminating glory of Jesus is more powerful than a thousand suns. And so for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world, he's not only saying, I am the active creator of the universe, but what he is also saying is this, I am the creator of the new heavens and the new earth. That's Jesus' rebuttal. I know where, I'm coming, where I came from. I'm the creator of the universe, and I know where I'm going, not only to the cross, and he's talking about that. We'll get to that in just a moment, but I'm also going to prepare a new place in which I will make the new heavens and the new earth. So these are the two claims of creation that Jesus is making. But he's also making two claims concerning salvation. Here's the first one, the third point in your note sheet. When he says, I am the light of the world, what he's saying is, I will expose the darkness because nothing is hidden from me. People of God, I want to tell you something that ought to scare you, and if it doesn't, it shouldn't, or it should. (laughs) 
And here's what it is. God knows your thoughts. You have no secrets. None. It's a myth. You have no secrets before God. And so if if you're part of the Gateway family, perhaps you remember me during the Acceptable Sin series, the way that I put it then is I said, imagine if God uh, chronicled all of your thoughts just for the last 30 days and he wrote a book on it and he gave a thousand books to Barnes and Noble and a thousand books to Amazon.ca, what would you do? You would buy every copy, wouldn't you? Why? Because otherwise you would die in shame. We don't want people to see what's going on in our head. And so in our shame, we would purchase every single one. Well, let me, let me ask it to you a different way this morning. What would happen if we just chronicled the last 48 hours of your thoughts and for the remainder of our time this morning, we just scroll, scrolled through them on the TV screen? What would happen? If you had any sense of ego or any sense of pride, I think it would die away pretty quickly. I think we would all, each and every one of us, be utterly ashamed. And I'm trying to love you enough as your pastor to tell you if you think you're getting away with something in in the face of God, you're not. There's nowhere you can go. There's no place you can be. There's no time of day in which you can hide from God. God says everything that the world, that is happening in the world, I can see. I think, for example, of what King David says in Psalm 139. He says this, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me. No, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, there's a, there's a unique danger, spiritually speaking, that I think Christians need to be aware of. See, there's a myth out there that once we step over the line to follow Jesus, all the sins that we were wrestling with before Christ ought to just go away, right? And, and we should never have problems with those things. We should never struggle with those things any longer. Like, man, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I can't be struggling with this. And here's what happens. When you are tempted to believe the lie that you ought, that you shouldn't be struggling with these things any longer, and you begin to conceal yourself and hide the truth with the things that you're struggling with, the grips of sin and death begin to peel away at your very soul. And you begin to hide in your shame. See, we sort of project this idea, in church especially, that we have everything all together, that everything is going okay. That nothing is wrong in my life. And do you know what happens? We then create a culture in which everyone feels like they need to project the same self-image. We need to project this idea that everything is going on. I should probably, because everyone else has everything together, I should have everything together too. Now let's get really practical for a second. Let's say that you're struggling in your marriage. Or you're struggling with a secret sin. You're struggling with an addiction. You're struggling with pornography. You're struggling with private lust. You're struggling with uh, flirting with a coworker at work and you know you shouldn't be doing it. Or uh, you found your old ex-boyfriend on Facebook and you started up conversations and you know I shouldn't be doing these things. You're ashamed of it, but by the same token, I can't tell anyone about it because you start thinking to yourself, what if my spouse found out? I mean, what, if, what would your life group members think? What would people in your church think if they knew that about you? What would your yoga group or your soccer friends think? They know you're a religious type. They know that you're a Christian. 
What would happen if they found out you are nothing but a phony, a fake, a fraud? What if they found out that your Christian testimony, that, you know, you're living your life for God, it's all fake? What would the people at church think when you look around and you see they have all their life all together? You look at their marriage, it looks great. You look at their relationship with their kids, their kids are perfect. They don't have any vices to be found. And I can't bring that here. I can't bring it to bear upon other people. And so you decide in your heart of heart, it is far too dangerous to tell the truth. It's far too dangerous to expose the secret sins that you've been struggling with. And so the decision that you make is you decide that you will hide. That you'll hide. And see, as a pastor, this is what grieves me because I can tell you even after less than 10 years in ministry that I can give you story after story after story after story that goes just like this one. And in the end, what really grieves me is typically they do end up losing their marriage. They do end up losing their reputation. They do end up being exposed and such incredible pain is down the road. But when we try to conceal these secret sins, to make sure that they are not exposed, the grips of death and destruction begin to do their work in those secret hidden places. And so as your pastor, and as the pastor of this church, I plead with this community of faith, we need to begin to break down these barriers. I mean, just think about this for a moment. For those of us who identify with Jesus, do you know what that means? Do you know what's so radical about living the Christian faith? We are marked as a people who are identified in the cross of Christ. Do you know what that means? It means the cross has already outed you. That's what we believe as Christians. We, we ultimately, fundamentally believe that we are broken, sinful people who need the good work of Jesus in our life. Otherwise, we would die of shame. And if we can't be honest here, if we can't be open and vulnerable here, where can we be? And so it's my hope and my prayer that this can be the place where we can be vulnerable. This can be the place in which we can stop and desist in living two separate lives, the life that we project and the life that we are afraid of and we are concealing. You know, King David, he was a master in this area. He was the person who uh, committed adultery with a woman and the way that he tried to conceal it is by murdering her husband. And then even after that happened, he tried to conceal the whole story by getting married to her and slipping everything under a rug. And when everything was all said and done, here's what King David writes. Psalm chapter 32, he says this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We can all agree, that's great. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And when you see the word deceit, it means there's, there's no secret sins. Right? You're not, you're not harboring secret sins. Because, here's what he says next. When I kept silent regarding Bathsheba and Uriah, her murdered husband, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. Have you ever been in that place where you're living two separate lives and you are living so incredibly burdened because you have this life that you project, but you have the real life that you are hiding behind the surface that you don't want anyone else to see. And scripture says we don't have the strength to carry two separate lives. And then here's what happens next. Here's the grace. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's what happens. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you see the progression? Do you see the heart of King David? He says, when when I tried to conceal my sin, my body wasted away. I was overcome with grief. I was overcome with pain. And as painful as it was for everything to be exposed, that was the moment in which I was able to relinquish control of the second life. To let it go. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so I say to you again, the cross of Christ has already outed you. We are marked as a people of God who are identified in our brokenness, in our sin. And what we say as Christians is, is here stands a person who has been outed by the cross of Christ. And I need the work of Jesus in my life in order for me to be set free. If your Bibles are still in front of you, I want you to look to the story that happens immediately before Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. And it shouldn't be lost on us that providentially, by the power of God, John writes down this story immediately before his statement, I am the light of the world. That's intentional. It's the story of the woman who has been caught in adultery. So this is John chapter 8, starting at verse 3. It says this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What's he writing? I don't know. That's just a side note. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Have you ever wondered why the older men left first? It's because older men have a portfolio of sins and younger men are geniuses. Older men have enough life experience to know that they've already tried to do a handful of things and they've been busted. They've made a series of mistakes that they know that they can't undo. And so life experience has a way of humbling all of us, doesn't it? And it's for those of us who are young, the unique danger, spiritually speaking, is is we view ourselves more highly than we ought to. And it's amazing to me that John just quickly identifies that the older men leave first. And one by one, all the rocks go thud, 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 and they all walk away. And then Jesus kneels down, and he picks up this woman's face, and he says, where did they all go? Did no one condemn you? And she says, no, no one has condemned me. And he says, neither will I. Now go and sin no more. What a radical message of God's grace and mercy. It shouldn't be lost on us that Jesus was the only sinless person there. And the irony is, of course, that Jesus in his justice had the right to do so, but he didn't. And so what are we learning from this story? 
What is Jesus seeking to highlight? When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's not only saying that I will expose the darkness, that there are no hidden secret sins, that that nothing is hidden from me, but when he says, I am the light of the world, he's also saying this, I have conquered the darkness, and there is nothing that I have not overcome. I mean, just, just let that sink in for a moment. Recognize what Jesus is saying to you. On the one hand, Jesus is telling us that you have sinned and you will be held accountable for your sin at the last day. And just like this woman who has been dragged out of her sin, she's been exposed. It's not like she went home and she repented of her sin and she said, I'm so sorry. And she went to a priest the next day and said, please forgive me. No, she was caught in her sin. She was dragged before everyone, exposed and naked before all. And in the same way, that's going to be our experience. Everything will be revealed. But at exactly the same time, Jesus is telling us, I will not condemn you in your sin. Do you know why? Because I have taken your condemnation and I have put it upon myself. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, What he is saying is, I have overcome the darkness, and it's not until Easter do we realize what that ultimately means. Do you see, do you remember what happens immediately after Jesus says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit? It says, the whole earth was dark. The light of life diminished. And it wasn't until Easter morning did the light rise again. And we realize now what it means when Jesus says to his disciples, post-resurrection, I have overcome the darkness. You know, there's a a poem that has been written uh, by George Herbert, and he said this. I think this beautifully encapsulates what Jesus is talking about in this story. He says, our conscience looks at us and says, be gone, you wretch, retreat in shame, But Jesus says, my love, come here, I bore the blame. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. But Jehovah knoweth none. (laughs) Jehovah knoweth none. Do you see what Herbert is saying? What he's seeking to highlight is for those of us who have been humbled by the first point, that we have nothing to give Jesus, Each and every one of us are are broken in our sin. We stand before the cross of Christ, and, and what the cross is, in one sense, is an offense. It is an affront to everything that we have done. But in another sense, it is an incredible mercy that says, you have been set free, not because of what you have done, but because all of the condemnation on account of your sin, I have taken upon myself, and I have nailed it to the cross so that you can be set free. And so Jesus says to you, I have not condemned you. Now go and sin no more. And we can picture this day, if if we have the eyes to see it, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's not just saying, I can see all the dark hidden places. He's also saying, I have overcome the darkness. And then we see Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, which says, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. Why? For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever.
Amen. Now, if this is true, if Jesus is the light of the world, then then you need to take your limitations off what Jesus can do in your life, of what Jesus can do for you. And my hope and my prayer for you once again is that you would not just know about the things that Jesus has done, but that you would witness and behold Jesus in all of his glory, and you would bow down and worship, and you would grow in your love and your fear of the Lord, that you would draw near to him on account of learning more about who he is in his essence. And so I say to you once again, this is is what Jesus says to you. He says, I am the light of the world. For those who follow me, you see that word follow? That's the Hebrew word tell me, the word for disciple. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, no, but they will have the light of life. My prayer for you is that you would have the light of life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, good God. We thank you that you are the light of the world. We thank you that you are not only the creator of this beautiful universe, that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you care for us in such a way that not even a hair can fall from our head without you knowing, but that you also came from heaven to earth and died in our place, bore our sin and shame, put the condemnation of sin and death upon yourself, so that we could be set free. I ask, Lord, that we would know this in a new way this morning and that we would be released from the grip of sin and death and that we would be set free to worship you in obedience and love. By the power of your Holy Spirit, make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. 